0: This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Isaac Dover. This week, all eyes in Washington were on the Senate, where the impeachment trial is playing out. But on Thursday, I wasn't chasing down senators or presidential candidates. I was a few blocks away from the White House at the Capitol Hilton, where the nation's mayors had gathered for their annual conference. More than any other race in recent memory, this election has shown that running a city, even a small one like South Bend, can be a national platform. Well... This week's interview is with the mayor of a big city. America's third biggest, actually. And the political home of the last Democratic president. Chicago has a new mayor, and many of you may not know her name yet, but that will probably change. Lori Lightfoot won the job in a landslide. On election night last year, she carried every one of Chicago's 50 wards. It was her first time running for higher office. And that victory was a night of several firsts. She became the first African-American woman to lead the city, and the first openly gay mayor of the city.
1: Today, you did more than make history. You created a movement for change.
0: In a city defined by political dynasties and well-known political players, Lightfoot ran as an outsider, someone to fight corruption and reform the police. With one exception, this vote was also the first time Chicago had an open mayoral race since the 1940s. So, all that's to say... Her election is a big opportunity to remake one of America's largest cities. So I want to get to know her better, understand where she's coming from and what motivates her and what her perspective can tell us for Beyond Chicago. Before we play the interview, let me tell you a little bit of her background. There's a lot to it. She's a former federal prosecutor and a partner at a big law firm. She became known in Chicago as a critic of the police department after holding several oversight roles. But she grew up in a small town in Ohio. Throughout her life, she's felt a drive against injustice. We talked about how her parents sparked that in her, but also how she's experienced injustice herself. Take a listen. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. It's my pleasure. So you have been mayor for six months now, about eight months. months. Uh, I lived in Chicago for about a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was in graduate school there. That was already a while ago. It was 2002, 2003. Uh, so the city has changed a lot since yeah. then, but it's a complicated place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what you have been most surprised by in terms of the government impacting people's lives uh, or or not.
1: Well, in, in, in 2019 and 2020, where I go to places and people say to me, um, I've never met a mayor before. I've never seen a mayor in my neighborhood. And these are not you know, teenagers or 20-somethings. These are um, our elders, people who are 60, 70 Mm -hmm. or older and have never had, in their minds, a mayor who has focused on things that are part of their daily experience. Um, I'm grateful that I'm there and present in those places, but I'm also mindful of the fact that I've got to deliver for those people. Fundamentally, what it comes down to is giving people in these communities that have been under siege for way too long by violence, by poverty, by all the things that we know manifest in social ills, giving them hope and letting them know that they're not abandoned, which is what I think too many people in some communities in our, in our city feel.
0: In reading about you and getting to, to know your, your life and your record, it seems like one of the things that struck me is that you have had your own experiences with uh, things that were unjust, things mm-hmm. that went the wrong way, mm-hmm. that went on, if things had been just a little bit different, the pathway would have been very different for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, look, growing up in Maslin, in a pretty segregated city where my family lived on the west side of town, which was the You know, we were the factory workers. We were the people who clean your houses. Um, But being one of the few black families that lived in my neighborhood forever, um, that definitely left um, an indelible mark on me. I grew up at a time when racial discrimination was still very much on the top of the table, not under it. And no question that I was denied opportunities solely on the basis of my race, not um, going through most of my K-12 through 12, uh, educational experience and having a single black teacher in my school, you know, um, being the only black kid in my elementary school once the brother that's closest in age to me left, those are things where, you know, and, and then in that context, having people constantly be surprised that you have a thirst for learning, that you, you know, like to read. Um, and luckily, I was raised by... Um, a great father and mother, and my mother in particular, you know, kind of prepared me uh, for the world, but if I didn't have that kind of support, there were all kinds of signals around me that I didn't belong, that the expectations for me were so low, but that's not how I viewed my life, and it's certainly not how my my, my parents, and particularly my, my mother viewed my life. The other thing that definitely shaped my experience as a child is watching my father struggle. My father was deaf um, my entire growing up years. He lost his hearing um, when he was in his early 20s before I was born. And seeing um, how difficult it was for him to be part of just a conversation, um, be part of a community, and, and knowing his experience, particularly in the workplace, being denied opportunities because of his disability, being treated differently and worse because he couldn't hear, um, that had a profound effect on me.
0: You knew that as a child that that was oh, going yeah. on? Oh,
1: yeah. Absolutely, I did. How did you know it? I knew it because I, I watched him struggle. Um, just in having conversations within our household, um, it was a struggle for him. Um, and I have stacks of little notebooks that my father and I used to um, communicate back and forth. Uh, so I saw that. I'd hear stories from relatives that worked in the factory that my, my father worked in of how he was mistreated by um, supervisors and management. that
0: Mistreated like they were insulting to him? Just, just
1: insulting behind his back, and he couldn't, of course, hear it, mocking him because he he was deaf. I mean, stories like that, uh, I'll be candid in telling you that they enraged me and made me feel like I wanted to do something not just to help my father, but that of course, but also feeling like if I was ever in a, in a position that what I would do differently and how I would be, um, how I would defend people who needed an advocate, that's probably part of what drove me to be a lawyer, is knowing that people that look like me growing up in my circumstances, if they got into trouble, they needed somebody on their side who could, you know, traverse. The different worlds, but be a fierce advocate for them.
0: And you found that if, you mentioned of your on your own part too, having mm-hmm. teachers who didn't think that mm-hmm. there was much to you. Were there moments that that jump out when you think back on that of, oh, of no. being in school?
1: Um, when I was in first grade, there were different challenges to you know read twenty five books, read fifty books, read seventy five books, and I you know I read my seventy five books, and my teacher was so astounded that I was able to get to that threshold. And I thought, my mother reads to me every night. And I remember feeling like this is strange that she's making this big fuss. Because there are other kids, of course, that were reading the 75 books over the course of the year. It started to slowly kind of open up my eyes to what the expectations were for Marie. and You know, growing up in a, an overwhelmingly white world and being a very good... At school, I was graduated fourth in my high school class. So I was compulsive about grades, but recognizing people feeling like I was an exception, and for a while I, I'm like, "Yeah, I am an exception." But then I'm sort of thinking, "No, I'm actually not." The difference between me and somebody else who looks like me and growing up in similar circumstances is the opportunities that were presented to me.
0: And then what happens with Miss Maslin?
1: Say again. With Miss oh, Maslin, Ma- yeah. <laughs> So it's the Miss Macedonian contest, which is kind of the outstanding senior girl. And I was president of my class all three years, president of the pep club, which is a big deal because it, you know, our whole lives revolved around high school football. I was in the band, in the choir, um, on sports teams. So by all objective measures, I should have won. And what I later found out was the judges had selected me but we were essentially told, no, you can't make a black girl Miss Macedonian. So I didn't win. And I think to this day, so I graduated in 1980, I don't think there's ever been a black girl selected as Miss Macedonian. And,
0: and I mentioned that this uh, episode with, uh, with Richard Posner. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk through what happened <laughs> there.
1: It, look, I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that this was something that, still makes me incredibly angry. Um, Just to put the context, this was an extradition case um, that a lot of junior prosecutors were called upon to handle. Um, The individual had kind of exhausted his rights, um, and the U.S. Department of Justice, who we reported to, of course, um, determined that it was time for him, having lost at two different levels, to be um, extradited to Norway. He was a, a Ponzi scheme guy who fled from Norway during the middle of his trial and was subsequently um, convicted. Um, his lawyer tried everything he could to stop the extradition, but the, he filed an emergency motion, the judge denied it, and then at that point, based upon advice that I received from my supervisor and from the Department of Justice, we perfected the, the extradition, if you will, so he was turned over to the Norwegians. His lawyer subsequently filed an appeal to the Seventh Circuit, and at the time that he handed it to me, I said, um, John, his name was John Green, it's too late. The, the, he's in the hands of the Norwegians and are on their way to the airport. So we got on the phone, again, talked to our counterparts at, at Maine Justice because this was a unique circumstance. Um, they told us, you know, we well, what we should write in a motion. It was my name on it because it was my case, but literally it was kind of dictated to me by my supervisor. Um, And we were anxiously awaiting a response from the Seventh Circuit saying, hey, he's on a plane getting ready to go back to Norway. We need some guidance here from you. We don't think that we have any right now as a country to stop that extradition that's already come to fruition. Um, Long story short, the Seventh Circuit filed... Disciplinary proceedings um, at rule to show cause why we shouldn't be held in contempt over a long period of back-and-forth and briefing It came down to me the low man on the totem pole, and I think Candidly the Seventh Circuit had put themselves out so far. They wanted to hold somebody responsible but they exonerated everybody else except for me who, as a junior prosecutor, was held responsible for something that was a chain of events that I was literally following my chain of command, including uh, folks at Maine Justice. Um, but it's something that haunted me for a very long time. I was afraid that I was going to lose my, my law license um, and was a problem for me every time I went into a new jurisdiction. But what it shows you, what it, my takeaway from that was, um, you know, no matter who I am as a black woman um, in this world, there are going to be people who judge me uh, more harshly, and the rules are going to be less fair um, simply by, by virtue of my status and who I am.
0: You talk to your mother every day. I do. What do you, I, I can't talk to my mother that much. <laughs> what do you talk to her about? Well, and, I mean, and, and you're the mayor of a big city.
1: Well, you know, my mother's 91. Uh, my father passed away 10 years ago now, and one of the commitments that I made to him as he was dying was um, that I would take care of my mother. Um, and there are four children, but I'm the one who's uh, close enough uh, close enough physically, but also um, emotionally. And I just I check in with her to make sure she's okay. And, you know, sometimes they're long conversations, sometimes they're brief conversations, but I do try to talk to her um, every day and... You know, when I'm not physically there and now it's harder to get, get there, I want to make sure that um, she knows she can rely upon me and if there's anything that she needs that I'm going to take care of it.
0: Do you think about what you would be saying to your father? And you were so close with him too. that uh, I, I talk just... to
1: my dad all the time. I miss him every day.
0: It's an amazing thing to, the the closeness that you had, and obviously the way that it drives you, and uh, and that he he saw your career take off, but not you as mayor.
1: So my parents are, are very um, they're very in- interesting for a number of reasons. But you know, both of them grew up in the segregated South. My dad in Arkansas, and my mom in, in Alabama. But their outlooks on life were radically different. And my father grew up very very poor. Um, his family were failed sharecroppers and part of the reason they left Arkansas is because um, they just weren't making it. I mean, literally weren't making it. Um, and my mother grew up in a big sprawling family, multiple generations. Um, but you know um, in their and her family, um, pretty horrific racial violence that prompted the family to leave Alabama and ironically settle in this same general area as my father's family in Ohio. My mother is the kind of person who feels like she has a right to sit at any table, um, period. Um, whereas my father, I think growing up in segregation and growing up in such poverty, it really affected his worldview. Um, and he was not a person who believed that the world was fair. Um, he saw the world, the world as you know, glass half empty. And that profoundly affected his worldview. Um, you know, I think in part because he was working two or three jobs for most of my childhood. I spent most of my time with with my mother, and her influence was probably more dominant um, in my shaping my own sense of myself than, than my father's. But It feels um, like
0: you get your sense of confidence from your mother and your sense of injustice from your father. That's
1: probably right. That's probably right. Yeah, my mother is one of the most confident people I've ever (laughs) met in my life, rightly or wrongly so.
0: (laughs) Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more with Mayor Lightfoot in a moment. I want to take it back a little bit here. You have such a uh, distinct route to getting (laughs) to be mayor. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Including not being born in Chicago. Yes, Uh, You wouldn't have run if you hadn't thought that you had the experience to do the job. But I wonder now that you've been doing it for these eight months, whether you have been surprised by the way that some of your previous experiences have applied to what you've been doing?
1: You know, I think everything that I've done in my life to this point has helped prepare me for the moment. You know, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, Spent a lot of time working on very complicated uh, matters um, that take a while to fix. Um, And so um, being able to kind of screen out the noise, but be really laser-focused on Getting towards a particular end. I think that experience has served me well. Um, But I also think that uh, my experience, of course, in being a former law enforcement official um, serves me well every single day uh, because I have a, a very keen sense of the strengths of our police department, but also recognizing that solving public safety requires a different set of tools beyond just law enforcement itself. It requires um, really getting all city actors engaged and in, in understanding that, that everyone has a role to play in bringing peace and safety to our neighborhoods. And I've used that. I convened um, early on in my administration of public safety uh, cabinet. We're having our first uh, meeting of the year here um, soon. But the all-hands-on-deck approach and really looking at the root causes of the violence and not just the daily manifestations of it is something that I'm— Not just
0: the police reports and the— Well,
1: and not just the the shootings and and the resulting effect. I mean, don't get me wrong. We are focused like a laser beam on that. But why is it that young men are picking up a gun and shooting indiscriminately into, for example, barbershop has happened recently? Why are um, young people— robbing folks at gunpoint and not having any compunction about shooting somebody who doesn't want to give up their iPhone, for example. Those are things that are happening, unfortunately, very frequently in my city. And what I know is, you know, from my University of Chicago training, people are rational economic actors. And if they don't have another means to get an income to provide for themselves and their family, they're gonna choose the opportunities in front of them. And until we dislodge the illegal drug trade and and guns from being part of the calculus and replacing them with more legitimate forms of um, employment but also um, built investing in human capital so that our young people have hope and think of themselves as having a life beyond whatever their current circumstances are we have to do all of those things simultaneously to really get ahead of uh, public safety and get a and bring the the levels down so that we become the safest big city in the country do you you, you
0: came in at- Again, not having served in government as an elected official before, uh, having had a a variety of roles, but but sort of uh, as an outsider. Mm -hmm. Now you've been in there. uh, We are living through a moment where people are reconsidering what government does, what it should do, whether they can trust the government. Should there be distrust of the government based on what you've seen the government was doing?
1: I certainly understand why people feel that way. Um, and the, the cross currents that have been blowing for some time that I think are very much responsible for the election of Donald Trump, I get it. I get why people have lost confidence, not only just in government, but in the governance of people, the governance of leaders. It's, I think, important for us to understand um, that loss of confidence in, in public servants and public service, but all the more urgent for us to regain that trust. Our democracy depends upon participation, and as more and more people opt out and feel like government is irrelevant to their lives, that makes the challenges that we have to face and the problems that we have to solve, they don't, they're not diminished by that. They're, and if, it, if anything, they're exacerbated by it. So the challenge is, how do you um, operate in this kind of climate in a way that regains people's trust? Because we can't take on and solve the challenges of the day, name any of them. For me, public safety, education, housing uh, affordability, climate change, environmental injustice—none of those things can we can move forward on as a government if we don't have the trust and confidence of the people, and regaining our legitimacy in their eyes but is when, mission critical.
0: Regaining—I mean, you you feel like people should have lost trust? It seems like that there was a, there were things that were going wrong, and that it was time for government to change.
1: There's no there's no question about that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take my city as an example. Sure. We have way too many people in public life who feel like they've won the lottery and that their um, primary mission is to make sure that they, um, they they have a lot of pecuniary gain at the public's expense. Um, I see it everywhere Pecuniary gain is a, a good they, lawyer's lo- term now. Yeah, that a, <laughs> meaning that they have the right to line their pockets with yeah. t- taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And that's not right. Um, but that's the way that it's gone. And worse is, there's an expectation on the part of many people in the public who thinks, "Yeah, that's how government works. That's why I don't want no part of it." Right. That's wrong fundamentally. And we've got to take on. We got to take on. Not, they're not myths; they're truths. But we've got to take them on and show that we actually can serve the people um, and put people first without lining our own pockets. And that's, I think. Winning back that trust by showing example after example of how we're going to do that and do it in a different way is critically important. And, you know, I'm not naive. I'm sitting as the mayor of Chicago because of people getting fed up with a level of corruption that kind of erupted um, with um, the, the downfall of Ed Burke, one of the most powerful politicians, and not only in the history of our city, in the history of our state, um, people were fed up in his... The FBI um, going in and executing search warrants on the city hall office, his ward office, subsequently the U.S. Attorney's Office, charging him with a far-reaching conspiracy that really boils down to, I have power and I'm gonna use it to personally benefit myself and my family financially. That's fundamentally what those charges boil down to. And people seeing, I think, me as somebody who's um, saying no, I was going to use another term, but I'll, I'll, I'll clean it up.
0: Um, That's a podcast. You can go for it. <laughs> well,
1: c- c- calling bullshit on that as an acceptable form of doing, uh, d- doing business in our city. And it manifests itself in lots of different ways. But fundamentally, I'm not in this to um, ingratiate myself with the clouded few. Uh, I'm not in this to be in office and perpetuate my power forever. I'm in it. To do the right thing and those people that I saw along the way my People that went to church with our family the people in my town. They exist in huge numbers in my city I want to be an advocate for them.
0: Can I ask you? I, I had this conversation with Rahm Emanuel your predecessor at one point in 2017 and I asked him if President Trump came to Chicago and you were to bring him around where would you bring him? Mm -hmm. Uh, President Trump has been to Chicago recently. He was there at the end of October. Mm -hmm. Uh, He stopped at a police convention and then for lunch at his building that's downtown. Mm -hmm. I assume that those would not be on your itinerary as the uh, preferred stops. Where would you take him in Chicago?
1: Well, look, the thing I'd want to do and I've said about President Trump is the facts matter. And we are a complicated city. We're a fascinating city. There's a lot of great things that are happening. If you really want to know who we are, As Chicagoans, then let me take you to neighborhoods outside of the glamour of downtown and show you how um, Chicagoans are living their lives every day. Talk to you about the challenges, but also the triumphs of our city. Uh, You know, I don't think he really cares about the facts, um, but he's got a very misguided notion of who we are, and unfortunately, he's got the world's biggest megaphone by which to spout his views. So. If he were to come to our city, and I don't think he will, um, and and certainly wouldn't take me up on, let me give you a guided tour about what we are, I would take him to see um, the neighborhoods and people in those neighborhoods who are working hard every day, but who are struggling and who need a leader in the White House who truly sees them, but more to the point— just doesn't see them has empathy and is gonna work hard every day to make sure that they have the opportunity to participate in the American dream that he has had um, throughout his life.
0: Do you think the Democratic Party nationally is getting that conversation right?
1: I don't. I think there's a lot more that we can do. And I've made no secret of the fact that I think that we miss a real opportunity as a party and I'm challenging um, our presidential candidates to, to think about who we are as a party, what our core values are. And you know, as a lifelong Midwesterner, it's important to me that the candidates are really speaking the values of the people that made the Democratic Party, the working class people, the folks in organized labor, uh, and the folks who are worried that their life and the life that their parents had, or their grandparents had, is slowly slipping away from them and won't be there for their kids. We have to speak to those folks because those are the people that we need to show up in huge numbers in November um, to vote. And if we lose them, we have no shot at winning the White House. But also, we run the risk of losing a lot of down-ticket uh, races as well.
0: Illinois politics the last couple of years has been uh, complicated as always, but uh, <laughs> and you've had your role in it. But in the state house, uh, you had in 2014 a Republican businessman who was elected spending mm-hmm. a lot of his own money uh, and won.
1: Mm-hmm. He was
0: replaced by a Democrat who spent more of his own money and won.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think that that maybe tells us or previews for what life could be like as we go into a year where there one way or the other, we're going to have massive spending in this presidential election. And we have uh, Donald Trump who maybe spending some more of his own money, but it's certainly running as a businessman. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got candidates like Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer who are spending their money. Uh, well,
1: there's, well there's, What do we there's, have to look forward to there's, here? There's, there's a lot to that question, right? It's, it's, one, the influence of money in politics, which I think is a huge problem. And I'm a supporter of campaign finance reform. I don't think we will in the long-term benefit if the only people who can afford to run at the national level, or really at any level, are folks who come with a lot of individual wealth. Wealth doesn't buy you leadership experience, great ideas, and an ability to navigate um, difficult policy and political terrain. So I don't wanna see us exclude a whole category of people simply because they can't go into their own pocket and run for office. Um, The other thing about that is, the, the businessman model. Governance is not business. There are things that we should do to run government much more efficiently, and we're trying very hard to make that happen in Chicago, but it's not a you know bottom line balance sheet proposition. It's much more complicated than that, because every single day, particularly at the local level, we're talking about how can we move the needle to affect the trajectory of people's lives, and you can't just measure that in dollars and cents. Um, and you know, it's no secret. I think um, God bless Bruce Rauner, but our state is better off with him in retirement doing something else. So th- these are complicated concepts. but again, fundamentally, it- it's not the wealth that I think is the thing that we should focus on. It's who's the person? What's her ideas? What's the track record of being able to make a difference in people's lives? Do they understand people who don't come from that kind of massive wealth? What have they done over the course of uh, their lives to really invest themselves in learning about people who come from very different experiences? And what are their ideas about how we create a different kind of vision for families and communities um, who are struggling?
0: All right. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. Pleasure. that'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode. Our theme music is The Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Baptiste. And if you want to support the show and all the work we do here at The Atlantic, the best way is with a subscription. Just go to theatlantic.com slash radio subscribe. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.